0: World. Exocast.
1: Exocast. 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 Exocast.
0: Exocast. Exocast. Exocast.
2: Exocast. 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 Hello, you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. On this, the first episode of 2017, Hugh will discuss the fate of exoplanets after their stars have left the main sequence... Hannah will talk about the Hubble Space Telescope's new PANSET program, and I will hop over to the Exocast news desk for a rundown of any and all things exoplanetary from the last couple of months. But first, let's meet our Exocasters. So, Hannah Wakeford studies the clouds and atmospheres of exoplanets from NASA Goddard in Washington, D.C.
0: Hugh Osborne hunts for transiting exoplanets from the University of Warwick in the UK.
2: And
1: introducing the show was Andrew Rusby, who studies planetary habitability and the early climate of the Earth at NASA
2: Ames in California. So first up, Hugh's going to take us on a journey past the death of a star and onto the fate of its planetary companions. Yeah, thanks, Andrew.
1: So, as as you probably know, most stars shine by fusing hydrogen into helium in their cores, and this sort of period when they when they do this fusion process is called the main sequence, and it's where most of the stars and therefore the planets we see and we've studied spend their lives. Um, Some smaller stars stay on this quiescent main sequence stage for hundreds of billions of years, whereas bigger stars burn brighter and die younger, with the larger stars actually only lasting a few million years on this main sequence hydrogen fusing stage. Over time, the amount of helium builds up in the core of of these stars, and then they become hotter and larger and brighter over time. So, our Sun, for example, was about 30% less luminous in its first billion years, and will continue to grow steadily on. Uh, for about 11 billion years in in, in total. So the the age of the star of our sun will get to 11 billion years. Even before uh, a star dies, this growth in brightness will probably spell doom for most planets in the habitable zone. As work Andrew and I did a few years ago showed, this happens in about 1.75 billion years for Earth, but can be substantially longer in the future than for other exoplanets around small stars. For example, uh, GLIUS 667CC, is uh, got 50 billion years before it's pushed out of the habitable zone by its, its ever-increasing uh, star. As the sun loses mass, as light and solar wind over time, there's also a chance that um, this decreasing gravitational pull from the sun could destabilise planets in the system too. And the terrestrial planets in our own solar system, about 1% of the models run over the next 5 billion years show one terrestrial planet being kicked out of our solar system. Um, so eventually stars, uh, they run out of hydrogen in their cores altogether and they, they leave the main sequence to become red giants and begin the process of, of, of stellar death, I guess. Um, and the first, people th- think people, the first thing people think about when they hear dying stars is supernovae, the giant explosions that occur when giant stars burn through all their fuel, collapse in on themselves and then explode outwards in one of the brightest flashes in the universe, often outshining their entire galaxy. This process is, as you can imagine, rather destructive to any planets in the system. Radiation and particles would sterilise the surface, and the loss of all that mass that was in the star into space can also gravitationally destabilise the system, and many planets are just expelled from their orbits into interstellar space. So we really wouldn't expect to find many planets around the remnants of supernovae, so neutron stars or black holes. It was bizarre then when three planets were found in the early 90s around the pulsar PSR-1257-12. Uh, these were the first ever exoplanets actually found with with masses around four times uh, the Earth and actually one of the planets has a, a mass about the same mass as the Moon. Um, and pulsars are these highly magnetic neutron stars that rapidly spin causing a beam of electromagnetic radiation that's emitted from both poles and then when this beam passes across the Earth we get a detectable pulse of radio waves. And these pulses are very rapid, um, tend to be many thousands or many hundreds of times a second, and they're also extremely regular, meaning any perturbation by, for example, the gravitational tug of an exoplanet can be detected by precisely timing those incoming pulses. So how did those planets survive a supernova, I hear you ask? Well, they probably didn't. Instead, the material that was ejected from the star during the supernova process coalesced again into so-called Second generation planets. Another pulsar planet was also found in 2003 around pulsar B162026, and this one was a Jovian mass world on a 100 year orbit around a pulsar and white dwarf binary. Uh, This one is thought to be old, so like an ancient planet that was in the system, although it was maybe captured from the other star in that binary system rather than surviving the, the supernova stage. However, these pulsar planets are extremely rare. And theory suggests that something like 90% of planets around any star that goes supernovae get ejected completely. Um, although it's a, So it's a common misconception, c- actually, that supernovae explosions are how all stars die. And in fact, this only happens for stars around eight times the mass of our sun and bigger, which are less than one in 1,000 stars. So instead, stars like our sun, they bloat up into this like, red giant stage and this go through this very chaotic phase of star e- evolution. They, go, they pulsate, they go through flashes of helium burning, cycles of contracting and growing, and also mass loss. Um, eventually, the giants stop nuclear fusion altogether and throw off their outer layers into a planetary nebula and leave a bright glowing core called a white dwarf. This is a very dynamic stage of a star's life or death, I guess, and it can be pretty tumultuous for any planets around them too. Um, but so far, astronomers have found something like 50 planets around the various stages of of giant stars, all with radial velocity surveys, which work extremely well because these stars are so big and bright they're very easy to get spectra for. Um, In fact, it works much better than transits because if you imagine a 10-solar radius star, the transit across a star 10 times bigger than the Sun is 100 times smaller than than across uh, the Sun. So there's actually not been many, or any, I think, uh, transiting planets found around giant stars. Um, interestingly there's been no planets found around uh, giant stars on orbits less than about half an AU, so half the distance between Earth and Sun. And one obvious reason for this is that these are giant stars with diameters hundreds of times their original main sequence size. So as such any star, any planets unlu- unlucky enough to orbit close in get effectively gobbled up by the star as it increases in size. And in our own solar system um, Mercury and Venus will certainly be engulfed by this process. Whether the Earth will follow a similar fate or just escape with 1,000 degree surface temperatures for a few million years is more of an open question, but obviously it's going to be uninhabitable either way. Um, Distant moons that are currently far too cold for surface water and possibly life may get their chance in the Sun though through this process, with enough heat to make icy moons around Jupiter and Saturn ocean worlds for a few million years. In fact, the habitable zone gets as far out as seventy AU, so far out that even Neptune will be interior to the inner edge of the habitable zone, which kind of gives you a scale for just how large and hot these our star is going to get. Um, another interesting consideration is that the mass loss that occurs over this process. So, um, while the giant planets in our solar system and and in many other solar systems will probably remain stable, the asteroids in the Kuiper belt and the um, asteroid belt will not and these will be thrown around the system possibly ejected possibly impacting any of the planets around um, and maybe causing havoc for for any life that is trying to survive through this this, this process so once that giant phase is over the star um, becomes a white dwarf so a ball of carbon or oxygen nuclei in a sea of electrons that's um, only the size of the earth but the mass of the sun so to give to put that into perspective perspective a teaspoon of white dwarf matter weighs something like five tons so these are super dense super small objects Um, and they're kind of very weird as well so they don't really shine like the sun they don't do any nuclear fusion but instead they just slowly cool taking about three billion years to reach six thousand kelvin and then another sort of ten billion years to half in in um, temperature again Uh, so one candidate planet has been found around a white dwarf this was uh, seven Jupiter mass object that orbited about about 2,500 AU from its star, so extremely far out, Um, and it's questionable whether it's it's a planet or whether it's a brown dwarf. It's got a temperature of around 300 Kelvin, so weirdly Earth-like actually. Um, However, white dwarfs are pretty faint objects, they're obviously very small, and therefore they're not amenable to the usual exoplanet detection techniques. But despite that, there is very good evidence that Ancient planetary systems are orbiting most white dwarfs. And rather than direct uh, evidence for this, the knowledge comes from what is not what is around those stars, but what is in them, and that is metals. So uh, the colours of white dwarfs shine extremely consistently and, and usually only show signals of helium and hydrogen in their spectra. In fact, they're so dense that the, any other material that sort of uh, is added to them quickly sinks out of their atmosphere. But something like 4% of white dwarfs show signs of other elements, so rocky elements like silicon and calcium and oxygen, and also sort of metallic core elements we might find, um, like iron and nickel. And there's even been the, the signature of water in some white dwarfs. And these, we now know, are the result of planetary debris, some sort of like disrupted asteroids falling into those white dwarfs and resupplying these atmospheres with, with metallic elements, with with atoms that we would normally find in planets. So that's how we know that planets are quite common around these these old white dwarf systems. And we've even seen this process happening. So um, there's this white dwarf called uh, 1145, which was observed with K2 a couple of years ago, and also since extensively from the ground. And it shows these strange irregular dips in the light curve every five hours that seem to come and go and change in phase and move around a bit. And it's thought these are caused by several disrupted planetesimals which combine to about the mass of Ceres, so a really small body here, that are actually orbiting the white dwarf and being disrupted by the tidal forces and um, and the light from the the UV from the star, causing like comet cometary tails of dust streaming off their surfaces, and, and we see those those tails in, in transit. Um, now you might wonder if life could survive around one of these white dwarfs, and actually um, there is a habitable zone been theorised around white dwarfs, and it could potentially uh, be stable for up to 8 billion years uh, it is from around 0.005 so within this the um, current radius of the sun out to about 0.02 au so extremely close to the white dwarf and this has its kind of downsides as well so um, so one one of the things is that white dwarfs start extremely hot and then cool over time So a planet that's habitable for a long time has been zapped with UV and X-rays before the star cooled to a manageable temperature for life, Um, and also at that distance the planet becomes tidally locked within a few years. So um, any any planets around there are likely to uh, to be tidally locked, which we know is is not uh, the greatest um, is not a good thing to have for habitability. And also, guessing a planet from beyond one AU where the giant star doesn't destroy everything, to this extremely close-in radius is tricky, if not impossible. I don't think anyone's really come up with a way of getting bodies into that radius. So it's kind of, in a, in a kind of sad ending, these white dwarfs, as with all the coolest stars and all-stars, will eventually cool off completely and become black lumps of degenerate matter in a dead, lifeless universe. And as, they, as the Westerosi astronomers say, KELOS Margulis, ALL STARS MUST DIE.
0: Nice. <laughs> very nice. I mean, it's really, really interesting. But am I right in saying that when we talk about the habitability or habitable zone around these stars, the types of light, so the, the portions of the electromagnetic spectrum where they emit are going to be very, very different. Uh, around white dwarfs? Around these red, these giant stars. So when, when a star expands, like our sun's going to, it becomes a red giant. And the light from a red giant is very, very different to what we, we currently have here. Um, on that we experience here on the Earth. So when we say that the moons of Saturn or Jupiter, these icy uh, worlds will then potentially become liquid worlds. They will be experiencing a very different type of light than what we we currently have here. So how how that might impact it is something that really needs to be considered as well.
1: Yeah, so I guess that um it's probably taken into account. So red red giants kind of look a lot like. Uh, m-dwarfs in their spectra and we know the habitable zones for m-dwarfs quite well we, you can do the, the habit- habitability calculations for uh, earth-like atmospheres with um, the spectra of, of the colors of an m-dwarf so i imagine when the, the the guys who were looking at the habitability of giant stars they probably used the same uh, models right so they probably did adjust for the fact that um, the spectra the the light you get from the star is going to be different Yeah, but it it would it would be really different. So you're looking at um, much more red light, much more infrared light than we currently get from the sun. Um, So I'm not sure how that would affect the habitability
2: of these worlds. Well, Hannah raises a good point just from the um, the the nature of the reflectance of that red light, particularly with icy surfaces. Um, So the albedo of a planet has a lot of control over how much light is reflected away, Um, and that albedo can change with different wavelengths, so um, ice actually absorbs quite differently in the red, um, and might um, actually be warmer proportionally than a planet that was receiving visible light of you know, we're used to. So yeah, there's some there's some interesting just from a purely radiative kind of balance point of view. There's some interesting atmospheric dynamics going on there. I think.
1: All right. So for this month's concept, Hannah's going to discuss some sort of.
2: Bacon? Panset? Is that what it is? What
1: is Panset, Hannah? I don't, I don't actually know.
0: That is a very good question, and a question that we also had from some of our Twitter followers that asked us to talk about this. Um, and I am excited to tell you, and all of our listeners, and through them, hopefully, all of their friends, that Panset is the largest exoplanet observation program ever to be run with the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, PanSET stands for the Panchromatic Comparative Exoplanet Treasury Program, Um, and it's a program which consists of 498 HST orbits. That's 32 solid days of Hubble time, and over twice the size of any Hubble exoplanet program that's come before it. So it's, it's a truly fantastic and enormous program. Now, the aim of this program is to measure the atmospheres of 20 exoplanets using free instruments in six different modes as they are eclipsed by or transit their stars. So I'm going to take you through each of the parts of, of the PanSA acronym uh, and let you know what it's about. So first, pan is for panchromatic. This means that we're looking at the atmospheres of these planets over many colors or more accurately over many different wavelengths. This program's actually going to combine observations from the UV through to the optical and out into the near infrared, so using every aspect of the Hubble Space Telescope's wavelength range. Now, this type of investigation is really important because then we can get a complete picture of what the atmospheres of these exoplanets are actually made of. The UV allows us to look for evidence of hydrogen escape high in the atmosphere, uh, where some of these planets actually appear more like comets, with their atmospheres streaming off behind them uh, as they're orbiting their stars. Observations in the optical then take you deeper into the atmosphere to look for the sodium, the potassium absorption, or evidence of scattering by clouds in that atmosphere. And then in the near-infrared, we're expanding this out to these longer wavelengths, where we can find evidence of water vapor in the atmospheres, which can tell us about the abundance of oxygen, so how much oxygen there is available in these atmospheres. So with panchromatic observations, we can probe the hydrogen, oxygen, and even in some cases, the carbon chemistry of the atmospheres from the top all the way through to the bottom. And the bottom layers of the atmosphere can be probed using the eclipse as opposed to the transit. So that's, pan, that's the panchromatic part of pan-set. So we have this nice wide wavelength range. But next uh, part of the name is, the, is a really key part as well. Comparative. So this program is looking at twenty different exoplanets, as I said before. But this is from hot Jupiters, which will most likely be hydrogen helium based, to Neptunes and sub Neptune sides worlds, where we know very very little about what the composition of their atmospheres are going to be like and what the dynamics are actually going to be like for these worlds uh, a number of the planets in this program have actually been observed before um, so PanSet's actually filling in the wavelength gaps of some of those those worlds where a planet might have been observed in the optical we're now making observations in the UV and the near-infrared so that we can complete that spectrum or if a planet's been observed in the near-infrared we're getting the optical data for that so that we can compare both of them and get a full picture of that planetary atmosphere Now the wide range of targets um, and observations allows us to make detailed comparison between all of those planets and the different types of planets, so the different subsets within them and their atmospheric spectra to try and understand how they are similar, how they are different, and to look for trends in that vast parameter space of temperature, gravity, uh, which all include their masses, their radii, their atmospheric composition and dynamics. So this comparative nature and multi-wavelength nature of this program really allows us to probe into the vastness of the exoplanet parameter space. So we have uh, very, very quickly, you know, we've already got the pan chromatic, the comparative, the C, and I'm hoping that the E for exoplanets is very self-explanatory. You know, these beautiful planets that orbit other stars that we're very interested to hear at Exocast. The last part of uh, PanSet is the Treasury part. So the Treasury is a directive from Hubble and to the scientific community. So the Hubble program itself is putting out this directive for Treasury programs. And the, the goal for this is as follows. The goal of these programs is to increase the scientific impact of Hubble in part by providing sets of high level science products to the astronomical community that are useful for addressing multiple scientific topics so each of these treasury programs that are awarded have to produce products for the scientific community that they can take they can then analyze themselves so everything is open all of the things that we are currently observing in the PanSet program are available to everybody in the community to download and analyze themselves This is a really key part of it. It's a community tool. It's us saying these are the scientific investigations that we think are really important right now and are able to be done. Here is the data. Everybody give it a go. And also that there are multiple scientific topics that you're covering. Now, the panchromatic nature of this programme really allows us to probe so many different parts of science. The UV is a completely separate part on its own that ties in really nicely but can be analysed as a collective. So the UV is telling us about these exospheres, the escaping atmospheres of these giant and very small worlds that we're looking at. And those alone are telling us something that is really, really fundamental to our understanding of the interaction of the star and the planet. And then you can tie that in with how the atmosphere fits together all together with the optical, which is the lower parts of the atmosphere. So when we're looking at the composition of the bound atmosphere, the atmosphere that is essentially attached to that planet by the gravity, we can combine them and try to understand the chemical processes that need to go on for this exosphere that we might be observing. So there's multiple scientific goals in mind for PANSET that is open to the community and we're producing actually high-level science uh, products that are going to be available via the MAST archive and via a number of different sources online so that people can download them and analyse this all themselves. Now in each Hubble cycle, so every year we the community reproposes to the Hubble Space Telescope to say we want you to point at these targets. Now each cycle there's just over a thousand orbits which are awarded to these treasury programmes. And with PanSet being 498 orbits, it's not only deemed big for exoplanet science, but science as a whole. This is a competing program that went up against cosmology, uh, looking at these big Hubble deep field images. It went up against solar system science, it went up against disks, uh, it went up against absolutely everything else, and we got... Uh, nearly half of the total time available. So that's, that shows just how important the exoplanet science that's going on right now is to the community as a whole. And transiting exoplanets are really an amazing resource of information. All of the things that I've just said, you know, about the, the ability to do multi-wavelength observations, to look at different parts of the atmosphere through the transit and the eclipse, they're gonna be the leading force behind exoplanet discovery and understanding for decades to come. Um, with James Webb coming up next, this is really, really important. PANSA is just the sprinting start for exoplanet surveys. So we're really, really excited that it's been underway. Uh, finally, I mean, I, the PIs that lead this program are Drs. David Singh from the University of Exeter and Mercedes Lopez Morales, who is at uh, Harvard University. And I spoke with David earlier, and this is what he said. I'm very humbled and excited at the opportunity to use the greatest scientific instruments of all time to look in depth and explore a whole diverse zoo of planets. So it's just, it's such an exciting program to be a part of, and everybody in the exoplanet community and the scientific community is a part of it too, as one of these Hubble treasury programs. So the panchromatic... Comparative exoplanet treasury is is something for all of our ExoCast listeners and to tell all their friends about. Now Mercedes would also like to point out, as Hugh hinted at at the beginning, that PanSet means bacon in Italian. So uh, she says that this is really the Hubble Bacon program, uh, bringing in the bacon for exoplanet studies everywhere.
1: So you're observing in with three different modes, right? I assume you can't do that simultaneously.
0: No, these are three different instruments, so we're using STIS, which is the optical spectrograph, which also has UV capabilities, COS, which is the UV instrument, and Wide Field Camera Free, which is the near-infrared instrument. And you're correct, none of these can be done simultaneously, so each of those three instruments require different transit observations, but within those instruments there are different modes that you would use. So in STIS there are four different wavelengths that we can observe over and that would take four different transits to make those observations. Um, and then with wide for camera we have one mode and with cos we have another mode. So these are six different wavelength bands essentially that we're observing these planets over which crosses the, the free instruments that we're using on Hubble. Um, and that means that for each planet if we're getting an t- entirely unique data set for a planet that's never been observed before we're getting six or seven different observations of it and sometimes eight
1: do you you worry that the the planet or even the star might be different on each orbit you're looking you know if if will it be less cloudy one orbit than the next will the star have a star spot
0: that's a that's a really important question um and one of the things that we've got we've got somebody called Gregory Henry from Tennessee State University who has been monitoring all of these stars uh, for as long as we've told him about which planets to start looking at. And he does the ground-based monitoring of all of those stars for us so that we can actually understand the stellar variability, so how these stars are changing over time. And those are done as near simultaneous as possible, and we have as long baseline uh, as possible for all of those monitoring as well. So sometimes we have at least 10 years now worth of monitoring of some of these stars. So that's, that's an amazing data set that we are able to use that allows us to really correct for any of those variabilities in the star. When it comes to the variabilities on the planet itself, what we're doing is we're using 3D GCM models, uh, which are run in, in our group at the moment by Tiffany Kataria. And those 3D GCM models, um, along with some different models that are being developed right now at the University of Exeter based on the Met Office code, with the Met Office is the UK weather uh, service essentially those models we're using to try and understand how the dynamics could be changing on these planets and whether or not we will be seeing or expecting any, any weather patterns now a lot of these planets are tidally locked i think actually all of them that we are looking at with pan are tidally locked so they've got one permanent day side and one permanent night side so the dynamics are going to be very very different for those kinds of worlds and most of them uh, are circularized so they they do not have any eccentricity on their orbits now the ones with an eccentric orbit we do have they do introduce different things into the models but we we do include that in every single fit that we're doing
1: are you worried especially with james webb that hot jupiter spectra will become like stellar spectra or brown dwarf spectra as in they'll be pushed to one side and become sort of boring
0: uh, I'm, I am very worried about that and I think that that's very wrong in both of those other fields that you mentioned as well. Brown dwarfs are by no means boring and, and neither is are trying to understand different stars. We certainly need that for M dwarfs. We really don't understand the stars enough so we really need to understand stars to understand the planets and brown dwarfs really are this bridging gap between these stars and these hot Jupiters. So I, I really am pushing my agenda here, I suppose. Hot Jupiters are fascinating and we know very little about them. There's so much left to explore. And the fact that they're they're quite easy for us to do, we, we call them the low hanging fruit, the easiest things to pick off the bottom of the tree. Uh, and that just gives us even more opportunity to be able to look into their atmospheres, really uh, probe everything we understand about the physics of what's going on and see if we can prove it, make hypotheses from the models and then see if we can prove it. And these are the best candidates for that. So if we can use them as a tool um, to really understand what it is we're doing, then I think they're, they're a really vital stepping stone that we need so that we can move forward to smaller worlds.
2: Yeah, definitely. I agree.
0: Okay, and now we have Andrew with this month's Exoplanet News.
2: Great, thanks, Hannah. In the news this episode, we've got some new planets, some extreme weather, and a milestone anniversary. Uh, So first up, astronomers have turned their sights on the nearby planet-hosting star Wolf 1061. So Stephen Kane from San Francisco State University has been seeking to better characterize the properties of the star, which is about four parsecs or 14 light years or so away and is known to host three planets, one of which is in the habitable zone. So astronomers and maybe our listeners too know that many of the planet's properties are derived from that of the host star. So actually getting a better handle on its size and its temperature and luminosity will help us to ultimately better understand the planets themselves. Uh, and this is what this study sought to do, it sought to, one, confirm that these planet detections are real, uh, which I believe it did, um, and not attributable to stellar activity, and also to make a more accurate calculation of where the habitable zone is in that system, given given the, the, the new measurements. Um, so... Um, It was found that one of those planets, the the one that's in the habitable zone, um, or was thought to be, uh, definitely is in the habitable zone. It's a super Earth-sized world, um, and I think it will be of interest for some time um, to astronomers, uh, certainly due to its proximity to the Earth. Also, the the Super Wasp South Observatory in South Africa has discovered three new gas giants, two of which uh, have been classified as hot Jupiters. So one's about um, 1.34 Jupiter masses, and the other is 1.8 Jupiter masses. Uh, The final member is uh, likely a Neptune or Saturn-sized world, novel in that it's the least massive of any of the planets discovered by the Wasp survey survey to date. Um, so it's about one Jupiter radius, uh, but its mass is only 12% of Jupiter. Um, all the while orbiting a late K-type star. So this raises a lot of questions about its interior composition, which uh, I think will need further further study to resolve. Uh, and now for the weather. Well, uh, not quite. Uh, it's the weather from the giant exoplanet HAT P7b. Anyway, one of the first planets outside of the solar system to have its weather studied in any detail. So, according to the authors of a recent paper, one of whom is our very own Hugh Osborne, visitors uh, to to Hat P7B should be prepared for extreme winds, temperatures between two and three thousand Kelvin, and clouds made from the minerals corundum or perovskite. So, certainly nothing that we're familiar with in our solar system. Um, Using previous data from the Kepler and Spitzer Space Telescopes, the the team noticed that the brightest spot on the planet's surface changed over the course of their observations, which suggested cloud formation and eventually dissipation driven by violent storms and winds. Uh, Also this month, uh, and as mentioned by Hugh earlier actually, the 1992 discovery of the planets around the pulsar PSR B1257 celebrates its 25th anniversary. So, depending on how you define it, and we have grappled with this before on Exocast, uh, this discovery could be considered to have uh, have started the exoplanet discovery boom, uh, and therefore this you know it's a relatively momentous occasion in that in that respect. We've um, we've come a long way in twenty five years, but it's sometimes nice to take stock and uh, and look back, especially as we have a very long way yet to go. So elsewhere, as I'm as I'm sure our listeners all have noticed, January's news has been dominated by the inauguration of, uh, of President Trump. Um, and I guess normally we have the privilege of avoiding politics here on ExoCast for the most part. But given that the leadership that NASA provides in exoplanet discovery, uh, I guess you know some folks might be asking what a Trump administration will mean for exoplanet science. Um, and to be honest, it's not really clear at this stage. Uh, we don't know what this administration um, has planned for NASA. They haven't they haven't said anything concrete yet, but we do know they're not considered particularly science friendly, um, certainly at the time of recording. Um, so we're not sure how this is going to impact exoplanet science, I guess, is the takeaway. Um, but what we can say is that a lot of our knowledge of, of habitable worlds, certainly, um, has been informed by investigation of the only habitable planet that we're able to study in any depth, which is the Earth. And there are some uh, concerns from NASA, nasa's earth science division um with some of the, the claims that, that uh, donald trump and his um advisors have made regarding climate change for example um, however quoted in a, a space.com article from january the 20th the director of nasa earth science michael freilich says that he anticipates a stable budget for Earth science under the new administration so we're not really sure how that body's direction and focus will change just yet So, uh, that's the news for this month, Uh, and now I'll hand over to Hannah for um, this episode's Adopt a Planet.
0: Thank you, and you gave a fantastic introduction. I'm taking a little bit from uh, Hugh's book here, and I'm going to cheat. And this month, I have selected into our family a little blue dot called the Earth. More than ever, (laughs) we need to look at our own planet, and I just wanted to go through and reiterate some facts about what is happening to it, and I think that's really important right now. So I'm just gonna go through some of the different facts about our planet that make it really important for studies of exoplanets and make it really important for us here. So in the last century, sea levels have risen by about 17 centimeters and the evidence is actually suggesting that that may be exponentially rising. That is a fact. All of the major global surface temperature reconstructions show that the earth has warmed since 1880. Most of the warming has occurred in the past 35 years, with 15 of the 16 warmest years on record occurring since 2001. So we know that the surface of the Earth is changing through multiple methods, and this is, this is by studies that are done from NASA GISS. GIS. So that's that's another nice fact about our planet. The top 700 metres of the ocean have actually shown an increase in in temperature by about 0.2 degrees Celsius since 1969. So this actually suggests that they are absorbing some of this increased heat that we see. And that tells us a little bit about the circulation and heat transport around our planet and about the, the abilities of different chemical compounds to absorb those. Now, associated with all of these things is the fact that our ice sheets are actually decreasing in mass. And the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets, uh, as shown from NASA's Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment, called GRACE, show that Greenland's actually lost 150 to 250 cubic kilometers of ice per year between 2002 and 2006, while Antarctica has lost about 152 cubic kilometers of ice between 2002 and 2005. So these are all things that we're seeing happening to our planet. Now, both the extent and the thickness of the Arctic sea ice has also been rapidly declining over the last several decades. And we're seeing glacial retreat uh, almost everywhere around the world, which includes you know, all of the continents, the Alps in Europe, the Himalayas in Asia, the Rockies in North America, Alaska, and even different glaciers that are present in Africa now these record high temperature events uh, have actually been increasing dramatically and in the united states uh, a number of the the number of low temperature events has also been decreasing so these are correlated things we're actually seeing an overall increase in high temperatures and a lower number of record low temperatures since the 1950s And since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, so when we're seeing this huge outpouring of CO2 into our atmosphere, we're actually also seeing a correlation effect with our oceans where the acidity of that water is actually increasing by about 30% which is a huge amount. And this increase has resulted from this emission of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So the water is actually absorbing as much of this carbon dioxide as possible. The ocean is actually one of the best lungs of our planet. And by by increasing the amount that we're, we're chucking into the atmosphere, it's actually making it much, much harder for it to efficiently scrub, I suppose, our atmosphere. Now... There is a huge amount of data on this out there, and all of these different facts are coming from a number of different sources, such as the the NASA Climate Science uh, website, as well as the NOAA website as well. So all of these things that I said are available for you to read currently, and hopefully that's not going to change. Uh, but I've also set up a page on the Exocast website. If you scroll down to the bottom, you can see something that says our climate. And you can find all of the, the facts and links there to, to websites which will continue to be uh, accessible, as well as data sets that you can download. Now, I know I don't need to convince any of the listeners to this podcast. I don't need to convince you guys that science and Climate change and everything is real, uh, but you do need to convince other people. So please go out there, talk, share the facts, share the concerns, and maybe, you know, collectively, uh, as we've been showing over the last month, we can bring about changing a little bit of understanding. So I think I, I am justified in this month picking our tiny little blue dot as our, our adopted planet because somebody uh, I think needs to adopt it into its little family
1: yeah i agree that's that it it definitely needed to be adopted and i think this is the best time possible to do it
2: yeah absolutely and i i I couldn't agree more Uh, i'm glad i'm glad that you you brought brought this whole issue up i was a bit you know apprehensive to bring it up in the news but i think it's something that we we do need to talk about science and politics um can't really stay separate for for that long they're always going to impinge upon each other at some point and, and this is a great example of that um i would just add to every all of the excellent points you made and and the fact the the current situation that's occurring uh in the poles is quite extraordinary in terms of the uh the sea ice extent which we're seeing at the moment it's um i think three standard deviations below the average um from uh 1880 to 2010 in terms of the uh, arctic sea ice coverage at the moment and maybe 10 degrees celsius above average temperatures so it's a really extraordinary time um politically but as well as climatically Um, and certainly this is an unprecedented event occurring in the polls at the moment and um, it certainly hasn't been in the news much so that was the only thing I wanted to add to your otherwise excellent rundown of all the reasons we should be adopting the earth into our little exoplanet family we'll look after it if we can
0: Yeah, and as I said, all of this is up on our website, so you just need to scroll down to the bottom. It's a link on a page. uh, It's called Our Climate. And in there, you can find all of the different things that I I have just talked about. And and what Andrew was referring to is the data set that I've also linked to there, which is from the GRACE data uh, and from some of the Greenland ice sheet uh, expeditions that have been run. And you can get to all of those data sets, download and look at yourself to see the evidence.
2: Fantastic. Great idea, Hannah. Well, thank you for joining us on another info-packed Exocast. Next time, Hannah will talk about some Earth-sized worlds orbiting an ultra-cool dwarf star. I will turn a philosophical eye on the search for worlds around other stars, and Hugh will take us through the latest Exoplanet news. So thank you for listening. If you can't wait until next time, you can check out all our shows on our website and on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, and like us on Facebook. Bye for now. See you. Bye. Exocast.